This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine. Plus, global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. It was a week full of Fed speakers and investors parsing through every last word to figure out what's next for the economy and the financial markets. And speaking of markets, the oddities that make up today's trading environment continued, Carol, to be front and center. Things like meme stocks, also Reddit-fueled rallies, and then we're talking SPACs. I've heard of them. <laughs> Special purpose acquisition companies. Nothing new, but still in vogue. Exactly. And kind of a frenzy this year in particular. And that brings us to Peter Atwater at William & Mary, who you will hear from and who writes about the age of scrutiny. That's S-C-R-E-W-T-I-N-Y. And what he says will be the third major financial betrayal in 20 years. Also this hour, it's been a busy year for global IPOs. One that went public this week is Doximity. We caught up with the company's CFO. And then a panel of real estate heavyweights. Brookfield's Bruce Flatt, Rob Spire of Tishman Spire, and Shay Khalid, head of Qatar's real estate investment company, with a reality check on office use post-pandemic. All of that to come. We begin, though, with this week's domestic cover story. It's all about a short history of shorts and the people who hate them. And by shorts, Carol, we're talking different kinds of shorts, right? <laughs> yeah. But and if you check out the cover image, which I highly recommend, go to Bloomberg.com, pick it up at the newsstand because uh, it's a fun cover image. Provocative, I think. <laughs> yes, I would go so far to say that. Well, we were joined by Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, also Bloomberg finance editor Pat Regnier. Bringing shorts into the equation means you have people, uh, you know, who have a reason to look even without actually owning the share. And they in fact can make money uh, by by taking a hard look um, even without ever having been involved in the bet. So people who look at this say, like, look, shorts, they bring, you know, liquidity to the market, they bring new information to the market, and, and they also can kind of surface things that, uh, you know, people who are bulls on the stock uh, might not want to talk about, and other people who don't have a stake in the company might not have a reason to go um, sniffing around to look at. That's not to say that it's not like a lot of Wall Street, but sometimes murky business, uh, but uh, that's, that's that's how it works on Wall Street. Let's not forget, first of all, it's the other side of the equation, right? There are people who mm-hmm. talk about stocks that they like, and we're all kind of comfortable with that. This is people who talk about stocks that they have concerns about. It's the other side of the trade, and Pat, shorts and short investors, they can often be right. They certainly can. I mean, the, the classic example of that that often comes up is, uh, you know, Enron. It was mm-hmm. a short who was, uh, you know, uh, speaking to journalists, uh, you know, about like, you know, maybe, you know, something something doesn't look right here. Um, you know, we've had lots lots more examples. Sometimes the specific things that they bring up aren't right, but they create enough smoke that people start kind of looking for fire. Um, and that and and that can be an important role. Um, they are interested actors. You know, I think, uh, you know, journalists have kind of a soft spot for shorts, and we have to be careful because that can be mm-hmm. a little bit of a trap, right? They, right. Shorts spin great stories. Mm-hmm. They have a reason to. What journalists have to remember is, like, you know, we just like great stories. Shorts like great stories that make them money, and you got to remember that part. Pat, you also get into the concept of naked shorting, which is getting a lot of attention right now, mm-hmm. and it's something that's really misunderstood. What did the data tell us about something that is actually not allowed that people think is happening? So the idea of naked shorting is that you're going short, but you're not doing the crucial 
crucial thing that you're supposed to do when you're shorting a stock, which is you actually have to borrow the stock before you sell it to somebody. So you're basically doing the trade and telling somebody that you have this stock that you're selling to them, but maybe you haven't actually borrowed it, which uh, would be an abusive practice. It is illegal, and you can get in a lot of trouble for doing it. Um, you know, some people have pointed to the fact that um, there have been a lot of what are known as sales to deliver on some uh, heavily shorted companies, and they say, like, that that looks suspicious to them. Um, you know, the SEC has kind of a standard disclaimer when they release that data saying, like, you know, this could be a number of different things, not necessarily um, evidence of naked shorting. You know, I think it's something that always needs to be looked at. Markets are big and complicated and, uh, you know, and increasingly opaque in a lot of ways. Um, but there's no open and shut case that uh, naked shorting is is happening at all. You know, the other um, thing that I think the the timing of the story was was great for was the fact that Hindenburg has sort of been in, in the headlines of late. Um, Lordstown, obviously, being one example of that, DraftKings um, being another. And I'm wondering how, um, at Pat, you know, as somebody who's who's covered all of this before and and the ecosystem, what what stands out to you about the Hindenburg uh, examples? What's so interesting there is like there you have a case where that that is a company that's doing research and they're telling you that they're short, right? So they're giving you the information to know like I'm an interested party there. And you know in the Wardstown case they're raising a lot, you know they're raising a lot of concerns about some of the pre-orders that Wardstown has. Now Wardstown has you know said like we went and we looked and they. They actually said, yeah, there was some problems with some of the statements uh, we made there. They've denied some of the other allegations that were made. But, again, it was sort of like, hey, we're going to shine a light on this, and we're going to look at it. Uh, and then you just have to kind of, you know, judge this person who's just always remember who is doing a trade and needs, and, you know, and, and, and has an interest in, in setting the price down. Uh, they're going to be pointing at issues. But, you know, are they are they going to hit everything just right? Probably not. And they're an interested party. That was Bloomberg Businessweek finance editor Pat Regnier, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Like this story, we are talking so much about the Reddit-fueled rally, and so much of what's going on are short positions, short squeezes, and they actually did a primer on what it's all about. Efficient markets. Yeah, exactly. People take long positions, people take short positions. Coming up, from short selling to the age of scrutiny, William & Mary's Peter Atwater, who coined the term K-shaped recovery, has another idea that's getting a lot of attention. He's coming up next. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. All right, Tim, I lost count of how many Fed speakers this week. There were a lot of them. There were a lot of them. <laughs> and that included Fed Chief Jay Powell. He was up on Capitol Hill before a House subcommittee. He was talking about the impact of the coronavirus. Job gains should pick up in coming months as vaccinations rise, easing some of the pandemic-related factors currently weighing them down. Someone who looks at today's world through both an economic and Wall Street lens is Peter Atwater, adjunct professor of economics at William & Mary. Now, you might recall that he coined the term K-shaped recovery. He also writes about the age of scrutiny. The stuff he writes about is really provocative. And the age of scrutiny, that is spelled S-C-R-E-W-T-I-N-Y. What he says, Tim, is that uh, he's writing about the third major financial betrayal in 20 years. That's what he's writing about. He says, after the dot-com debacle and the housing crisis, the investment crisis 
crowd will not take kindly to yet another bubble burst. Here's our conversation. I've been watching, as I always do, human behavior. Mm -hmm. And it's been fascinating to see in this cycle, particularly in the last, say, 18, 24 months, where attention getting has been sort of the, the principal objective, whether you are a SPAC partner or a meme stock, um, that the, the whole focus has moved to what I call illusion, that our, our business leaders are now trying to captivate an audience. And, and this is a very different cycle phenomenon. And it, and it concerns me because at the same time you have all of these um, very charismatic, um, you know, very powerful leaders talking about the promise in EVs and the promise in space and the promise in all of this futuristic technology, you're starting to see companies where that illusion was false. You saw that with Luck and Coffee and mm-hmm. Wirecard and Greensill and, and Nikola. And, and most recently, we're seeing this being brought forth at Lordstown Motor where the crowd is beginning to wonder what was real and what was fake. But the age, the coming age of scrutiny, it feels like in some ways, Peter, it's a good thing. And, and it's interesting how I feel like in terms of cycles, market cycles, when there's things going wrong, investors are kind of quick to get the bad news and kind of push for the bad news to be out there, whether via an activist investors or the retail investor. Like, it feels like we get to it much more quickly. Is that fair? Yeah, but I, but I think so far, the, the crowd has shaken off mm-hmm. any sense that there is a systemic issue. We've, we've treated each of these as if they're independent, but I think we're rapidly approaching a tipping point where it feels like there's too many of these happening at once. And, and that then raises a question as to, what is real and what is illusion much more broadly. What happens or what's the outcome? I mean, we've gone through, right, the financial crisis. We've gone through the tech bubble. We've gone through certainly the pandemic. Each of those crises and the impact on either markets and or the economy, very different. Where does this all go? So we love illusion when we're, you know, watching a magic act. Right. But, But illusion is inherently predatory. And so I'm, I'm fearful that if people now see that they've been duped, mm-hmm. then, then that raises a broader question of by whom. And it's one thing to think that they've been duped by, um, you know, startup companies where, you know, okay, you've got very aggressive entrepreneurs, you know, touting the future. But I, but I think that there is a sense that, hey, I've been duped too many times. I was duped with a dot-com mm-hmm. bubble. I've been duped with a housing bubble. And I, and I think there's a real likelihood that the crowd says that, that they're angry about this, that, 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 they're, that they want something done. You know, how could this happen again? And that's why I use the term scrutiny, because I think people are going to feel like they've been really, really abused in this. So who do you blame in this process? Is it regulatory lack of oversight or is it, you know, money moves quickly. You know this through the financial system and, and 
the financial system markets in particular are always looking for, I'm not going to say how to game the system, but for that new opportunity, you know, and sometimes all of the transparency uh, about some new opportunity, it hasn't yet been revealed. And I think that, yeah, there will be questions as to who to blame. And, and sadly, Carol, the, the list will be long mm. because when confidence is high, scrutiny is low. We don't pay attention. We don't regulate as much as we might otherwise. There, there's, a, there's a whole social phenomenon. Um, and, and with this one, especially great because it's become almost cultural because we have this, this entire universe of influencers on social media who are in some ways portraying themselves in a, in a, in a, in a masquerade as well. Do you think that's all dangerous, the retail investor crowd? I think that retail inevitably shows up late. Mm-hmm. That's what all of the research shows. They are, they are drawn into it after an enormous amount of money has been made. And then they get very aggressive very quickly. And so I, I watch meme stocks as a, as a sort of a, a parallel to other market peaks. Mm-hmm. And I think that it, sh- it should be more cautionary than exciting to, um, to the retail investor. Peter, before we move on a little bit, I do want to just continue with your writing about the coming age of scrutiny and how you talk specifically about what ahead will be a third major betrayal in 20 years, and that specifically it would be more than just a pause or a pullback. So what do you think investors, or how do you see it that investors, what they should be preparing themselves for? I I think investors need to be prepared for far greater... um, Reevaluation of risk, uh, both in the credit markets and in and especially in the equity market. Um, you know, when Archegos failed, mm-hmm. the the question was what would happen next, and you're starting to see at Credit Suisse it's pulling back, it's lending to other similar entrepreneurs and and you know big investors. And I think that that sea change is likely to continue. And so investors who have taken great advantage of, of ample liquidity and rising markets should, should be prepared for a, a reversal of, of trends both on the equity and credit side. That was Peter Atwater, adjunct professor of economics at William & Mary. I always like talking with him, Tim, because he does look at what's going on in financial markets with an economic uh, perspective as well as with someone who understands Wall Street. And so it all comes together in a really smart way. Yeah, it really does. Always a great guest when he joins us on Bloomberg Business Week Radio. Well, still ahead on Bloomberg Business Week, a trend that picked up momentum during the pandemic, digital medicine. We're going to hear from Doximity's CFO on this week's IPO. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. It went public this week, doubling in its first day of trading. We're talking about the healthcare platform Doximity. For more on the IPO and the company's business, we caught up with Doximity Chief Financial Officer Anna Bryson. We're really, really 
proud and happy that we had a positive outcome for our physicians who participated in this IPO. Uh, we had over 10,000 physicians participating in this IPO, and, and that's more important to us than um, any additional funds for, for our company. Explain what you mean by that, because increasingly we are seeing companies uh, offer shares when they do go public to uh, groups of people who traditionally don't get to participate in IPOs. So explain what you did. Yeah, so we did a directed shares program for our physicians, which enabled them to participate in the IPO at the offer price. And it was critical for us because the physician is at the core of the mission. Uh, physician first is our guiding principle. And the physician's really the reason that we've been able to build this leading digital platform for medical professionals. So they're the reason we're here. Uh, so it was very, very important for us to, to have them participate in the IPO. I understand as you've got 1.8 million verified members uh, on the platform. Of those 1.8 million, how many did actually participate in the directed shares program? We had over 10,000 physicians participate in the directed shares program. All right, good to know. So tell us about the metrics going forward. I mean, you've got multiple tiers. One is free. You've got, a, what, almost $20 a month uh, as a provider that you can tap into. And then hospitals are also tapping into it. Um, that's, the, that's how you, that's the financial model going forward. Yeah, so we actually sell, almost all of our offerings are free for our physicians. So all of our mm -hmm. tools are free for our physicians. We do have a premium feature of our telehealth tool that uh, we, we do sell to our physicians for, like, as, as you mentioned, about $20 a month. Uh, but the main way we monetize is by selling into the, the healthcare space. And healthcare is an industry that's long been very under-indexed on digital spend, and it's in the midst of a digital transformation. And we currently work with 20 of the top 20 hospitals and 20 of the top 20 pharmaceutical companies. And that's the main way I monetize. So our aim is, is never to make to make yeah. money uh, out of doctors' pockets, uh, but but to focus on on the healthcare as an industry. All right. So what does the healthcare space get out of it? Uh, and and I'm assuming then that that's the bulk of your revenues in terms of percentage wise. That's correct. Um, so a health system customer would use us in order to engender referrals. So we allow them to potentially connect with a colleague uh, or a key opinion leader in order to give brand share brand awareness about what's happening at, at that hospital or what's the new the new therapy they're, they're focusing on in order to engender referrals. How did it grow during the pandemic? Because the doctors who I've spoken to have talked a lot about how uh, it offers telehealth and it gave them an opportunity to also contact their patients, not just through telehealth, but also by calling them from their cell phones, uh, but making it look like you could actually were calling from the office. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of our one of our favorite features. Uh, you know, the, during the pandemic, these physicians have, have long been using our tools um, for, for a multitude of years. We've, you know, we've been in place for it's 2010. Mm -hmm. um, and during the pandemic, they, when you know, physicians couldn't see any of their patients face-to-face, -face, uh, they, they started using our telehealth tools uh, dramatically at, at a, much, a much faster pace. Uh, and we were really proud to do our part in the pandemic and give back. And we actually didn't even start charging for any of the telehealth features at all, uh, even to our health systems, until January 1st. So we really gave it away for free for that, those first eight or nine months of the pandemic. And, and that was really, really critical for us. We were very proud to do that. It sounds like, Anna, ultimately, I think about companies that outsource back office operations or customer service operations. And it feels like in many ways, you guys are looking to do that for the medical community, doctors specifically, and the doctor communities at major hospitals. Is that what it's ultimately about? 
Uh, that's exactly right. We have a, a multitude of ways in which uh, physicians can use us, but we want to enable them to collaborate with their colleagues, stay up to date with the latest medical news and research. They can manage their careers. They can conduct virtual patient visits. We're, we're replacing the, that, that fax machine and some of the, the more antiquated technology that, that they've been using for so long, and um, we're trying to be a, a, a smartphone hub really for them. Listen, research is a tricky one. How do you how do you stay ahead and make sure you do have the latest and greatest research for those members on the platform? We do physician summits. We are constantly connecting with our physician members and getting feedback from them in order to grow our product suite for them. So they are directly involved in our product roadmap. How big can this company become? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just wondering, because it sounds like you guys have a lot more revenue streams that you can pursue. Uh, I think we have a tremendous organic opportunity ahead of us. As I mentioned, healthcare is an industry that is in the midst of a digital transformation. And uh, we look forward to you know, continuing on this journey and, and seeing where it can go. And I'll, I'll get back to you on that one. That's Anna Bryson, Doximity Chief Financial Officer, talking about the company going public this week. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Still ahead, the world increasingly going digital. We saw it at work during the pandemic with every Everyone working from home. So what does that really mean when it comes to demand for commercial real estate? I feel like it's one of the great debates of our time right now. Yeah, not just here in New York City, but throughout the world. Exactly. Working from home, hybrid, going back to the office, time will tell. Coming up next, we've got a dream team in the commercial real estate space. They weigh in. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. There was a lot going on in real estate uh, this week, Tim. There always seems to be. And that included Blackstone Buying, Home Partners of America. That's a rental company that owns more than 17,000 homes. Also, a Bloomberg big take on how the world's financial centers are struggling to get employees back to their offices. Workplace activity in London, New York, and San Francisco, well, it's still 50% below its normal level. That's according to mobility data from Google, Carol. Well, this week from the Qatar Economic Forum that Bloomberg participated in, I moderated a panel on real estate in a virtual world. On it, His Excellency Khalid bin Khalifa, he's chairman of Qatari DR, that's the Qatari Real Estate Investment Company. Also, Bruce Flatt, CEO of Brookfield Asset Management, and Rob Spire, president and CEO of Tishman Spire. They were a dream team. Here's some of that conversation. Bruce, let me start with you. Is it a case that we're not going to go back to our office? Or if I look around New York, it feels like a lot of people have already moved back. Look, it's, uh, life is about phases. People have to adjust. They're all coming back to the office. Um, it's just inevitable. And, uh, but, but people have to do it in phases. They thought they, weren't, they couldn't come back. Then they thought they were going to partly work from home. Eventually, they're all going to be back at the office. We're seeing it everywhere in the world. You can see it in the cities that are reopening already across the world. And uh, it's just happening at a slower pace in some places. But, uh, but it, it, look, everything's opening up where the vaccines are working. Sheikh Khalid, come on in on this. Do you agree uh, you're seeing everybody come back? Or do you feel like that there might still be some dramatic changes when it comes to real estate generally? I do echo what Bruce said. I think uh, in phases, as we have planned also here in, in, in Qatar, many of the, uh, the companies, agencies, organizations are coming back into phases. And uh, I see, I see with the, with the vaccine, vac- people getting vaccinated, uh, even a, a larger pool of people getting together in terms of meetings, events, what have you. I think we cannot get away from the concept of the uh, workspace. The concept of workspace is for many occupiers is to, to pool talent 
and to promote collaboration and uh, innovation. So this concept uh, we see in, in Qatari DR where, where uh, I am a chairman of, we don't see a change from that. I think we're getting back to normal. I think as a growing company like Qatari DR, it's important that we maintain the, the, the attracting talented people. And in the same time, as a growing company, we are developing and training national uh, to, to, as a successor for the future. And we cannot do that remotely. Rob, is it three for three? Do you agree that people are coming back from, from the office or does, does something change a little bit in terms of how we look at the office space, maybe how we use it or how much we use it and where we are using it? Companies are really struggling to define what a hybrid workplace means and how to implement that in an equitable way. Does it mean that nobody works Mondays and Fridays? Does it mean, as one big company's doing, you tell people which three days they come to the office based on a computer algorithm? Do you give every employee their own choice? How does that work? So I think companies' approaches have been very fluid um, depending on seasonality month by month. And it has been a real struggle if it's not remote or in the office and it's a balance of the two, how to actually execute. But I'd give you a, a fact point from our kind of on the ground experience. We were lucky enough to buy a building in Sunnyvale a couple of months ago at a 50%, 50% discount to the pre-COVID value. Within 30 days of closing, we have two tech companies who are looking at potentially taking the whole campus. Now, Six months ago, the whole world was writing off the Bay Area. Everybody was moving out, moving elsewhere. And the facts on the ground are most of the big tech companies have added extraordinary numbers to their workforce and they need places to put them. Nobody's making the bet in actuality that they're not bringing people back to the workplace. Well, that's what I want to get to and kind of make some sense out of, because we've done a lot of stories, certainly here at Bloomberg, about people leaving Silicon Valley, that the big tech companies are saying you can kind of work anywhere. Bruce, who is it that's going to be in demand for office space? Is it the same as it was pre-pandemic in terms of what we see post-pandemic? What what signs are you seeing? Look, I think the one thing that people have um, uh, forgotten about when they think of office space is normally uh, workforces, the GDP of the world grows. And you need more space to house people. And what happens when you have a slowdown is that nobody builds buildings. And there really hasn't been anything globally launched for 18 months, which means that this, the, um, the amount of buildings coming on is just getting less and less. And over time, what you're going to see is demand come back uh, and the amount of supply diminish, which means that um, you're going to have a whole cycle start over again. And uh, there's our, our view is that, um, you know, this is very positive uh, for real estate longer term. Uh, and um, and we're continuing to invest globally. And you can see it in each of the markets that open up. You start to see cap rates come down because people understand that the offices are going to be full again. And uh, and if you don't understand the business or people aren't in the business, they, it's maybe hard to understand. But um, but it uh, that is really what's going on at the ground level. 
Shay Khaled, what are you seeing? Like the other two on the panel, you have exposure, obviously, to the office space. Lucelle, I think about your massive development that you guys have been working on since 05. What are you seeing in terms of office demand? Who needs it? Who doesn't? Because there are certainly lots of stories about, you know, open office space uh, in Doha specifically. Well, uh, I, I can rephrase it in macro and micro. If I will talk macro, I think the office space demand uh, will continue, especially for big cooperation, big cooperations, uh, technology firms, as said by uh, uh, by uh, Rob, and also for the professional services uh, that rely on a large talent of pool uh, for, and looking for also best uh, locations, best space. If I talk about micro here here in Qatar, we have we went through uh, I think a surplus uh, of, mm-hmm. of office space. Uh, because it has to do with the with the with the demographic, with the planning, what have you. But I think, uh, but that also has a benefit of reducing the the cost per square meter, which is also encouraging uh, tenant to move in and uh, looking also for more of the smart cities, I would say, or smart offices. That's where the technology is is being upgraded and has more a sustainable and well-being uh, uh, location uh, for for the employee to to, to move in so basically uh, best locations best offices will remain as 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 a high flyer Jay Khaled, foreign workers are so important to Qatar. We know that. Uh, are you hopeful in terms of, you know, immigration policies? Are you counting on that and really changing demographics to help also fill those buildings and the demand there? Well, definitely, and uh, we've seen we've seen a change on the on the on the on the policies for uh, uh, immigrants to move in and uh, to give more of, of leverage to the to the business here in terms of the doing business or residency. Definitely, that's that's helping certain uh, cities, certain location within within the state of Qatar and within Doha, and we've seen that uh, going toward the the, the 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 right the right way, so to speak. Bruce, I know gateway cities are certainly, you know, on your radar and you still see strength in gateway cities. Is there anything to the argument that some of the secondary cities, because of companies that do offer now as a perk, kind of flexible working, that there will we will see kind of more investment going into those secondary or tertiary uh, cities? Yeah, look, look, all, all of them are, are all of the above are good. There are smaller cities that are highly attractive, Nashville, Austin, um, where people want to be and they're growing. Um, but just to put it in perspective, we're building a major complex in downtown Nashville. It's the office, mm-hmm. residential, retail, a big mixed use development. But it has 400,000 square feet of office. Um, <laughs> We ourselves own 60 million square feet of space in New York City. So it's just the quantums. And as Rob said earlier, to get the people, and as Jake Khaled said, to to get the amount of numbers, you need to be in these big cities. So Facebook, uh, Google, and, and many of the tech companies are in New York City because it's the only place that they can get the mass of talent. And that's not to say that nationalism isn't gonna be important. But it's just it's just the quantums are different. Bruce, while I have you, I want to talk a little bit about retail specifically. You guys have big exposure. You bought GGP back in 2018. The timing on that, 
Did it cause you pause, certainly over the pandemic year? Look, we, we started buying it in 2009. We bought it four, time, four parts of it. And uh, the last Fair part much. we completed in 18. So, um, but yeah, look, retail was not great. When they shut down your business and it goes to zero for a couple of months, it's not, uh, it's not fun. But if you take it today, numbers are coming back strong. If you have great centers in great cities, um, people are strong. And actually, sales in many of them are above where they were pre-pandemic. So... Uh, retail sales are coming back. And yes, there was a little bit of a pause, but those that are well-financed lived through these periods of time. And, and we're all trained to do that in the real estate business. That was Sheikh Khalid, chairman of Qatari DR. That's the Qatari Real Estate Investment Company. Also, Bruce Flatt, CEO of Brookfield Asset Management. And Rob Spire, president and CEO of Tishman Spire. Hear that entire panel? Just go to BloombergLive.com. Well, that's going to wrap up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Tim Stenovec. And I'm Carol Master. Coming up in our next hour, Peloton working out deals in the corporate wellness space, an Indian princess on the pandemic's impact on her home country. Plus, the cinematic tale of real-world drama that captured our attention. We've got the inside story of Ever Given. It's the massive ship, of course, that got stuck in the Suez Canal and caused global shipping to come to a halt earlier this year. It's got to be one of my favorite stories in the magazine this week. It is a deep dive. Yeah, totally. Uh, speaking of diving, how about going diving for lobsters? All the rage, which you believe, during the pandemic. Who knew? We're going to talk to the founder and CEO of Get Maine Lobster. That's all ahead in the next hour. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week. Insight from the reporters and editors who bring you America's most trusted business magazine, plus global business, finance, and tech news as it happens. Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including Peloton stepping into the corporate wellness world. Yes, indeed. Plus her royal princess, Janavi Kumari of Muwar, on her home country of India and managing through the pandemic. And get ready to pay more for your lobster mm. this summer. We're going to hear from the founder and CEO of Get Main Lobster. You've already had a lobster roll. I've had my first summer yeah. lobster. Not a lobster roll, though. Oh, whole I thought you Magilla. had a lobster roll. No, the whole McGill. Oh, good for you. It was yummy. First up this hour, the international cover story in Bloomberg Business Week magazine this week. It is about something that we were all mesmerized by for one week back in March when global shipping came to a halt when the Ever Given got stuck in the Suez Canal. How it happened, Tim? Bloomberg's Kit Shalel led a team of reporters to get the inside story and tell this cinematic tale. He joined us along with Business Week editor Joel Weber. One of the things that um, we learned was that um, the, the captain actually uh, got conflicting information, um, and and what? How did that transpire? According to the the our reporting that you guys were able to get. So what what we do know about what happened on the bridge when the ship crashed was there was a chaotic situation. These uh, these pilots had uh, boarded the ship. Egyptian pilots whose job it is to steer giant ships through the canal. Uh, they spoke mainly in Arabic. And on the bridge also was the captain, who's an Indian gentleman, and his crewman, who, uh, who spoke mainly in English. And there was this situation where there a dispute emerged about whether it was too windy to enter, and then once they were inside the canal, how to keep the ship on a straight keel. And the argument became quite forceful, and the pilots threatened to leave. And while all this was, while this was going on, they lost control of the vessel, and it crashed. So what about now? Because I think, as Joel said, and I, th I think people were obsessed with this story for six days, and then so many people 
like we do with 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 big stories i think as as consumers we move on and i think people were really surprised to find and have been re- really surprised to find that hey the status of the ever given right now is kind of still up in the air yeah i think most people just assumed the ship had sailed out right. and gone about its business but uh, no, it was it was seized shortly afterwards. It never left the Suez Canal. It's in fact still there because the Egyptian government is seeking a billion dollars or so in compensation from the ship owner. And really the only leverage that the Egyptian authorities had was the ship itself. So they refused to let it leave. And the crew and the captain found themselves almost as pawns in this, in this big money game. Um, and they're still there. Uh, just this week, it looks like there's going to be a settlement um, that they've reached a tentative settlement and uh, the, the crew and captain will be hoping they can leave in the next few weeks. But, you know, uh, there, are, there are stories of sailors who have been stranded on vessels in the Suez Canal over legal disputes and, and stayed there for years. So it's a really bad situation for the crew in particular. Well, and what's interesting is, and you really shed a lot of light, um, Kit, on this, is that there's a lot of parties involved in these massive ships. There's the owner of the ship. There's companies that provide the people who are on the ship. And then you've got the Egyptian pilots who come on and help it through the canal. And there's a lot of finger pointing, it sounds like, at this point. Because from what I understand and you're reporting to, those pilots were bickering while they were going through the canal. And they were bickering when they came off the ship as well. Yeah, you know, modern shipping is really complicated. Things get messy whenever there's a legal dispute because you've got the owner of the ship, the, the crew of the ship, the owners of the cargo. There were 17,000 containers on board the ship holding things like Nike shoes and Lenovo laptops. Uh, you've got the insurers involved, ultimately, are going to pay the bill. You've got the Egyptian government. All these different parties have different interests, and it gets really complicated. My other favorite scene in the story kit is the court scene that that went down. And and what can you tell us about what transpired there? It was this amazing day in the court in Ismailia, uh, which is almost exclusively for shipping disputes that happen in the canal. Um, and we just we were we were fortunate to to happen to be there when the ship owner um, suddenly uh, pulled out a new legal strategy. Until that point. The conversations had been very civil and it looked like they were working towards a settlement. When we were in court, that all changed and they suddenly played their, their wild card, which was to say it wasn't our fault, this crash. The Egyptian authorities and the Egyptian pilots bear some of the blame. And we have this audio from the bridge that proves it. Um, uh, so it was actually it was very dramatic in court and it was very tense. And um, it was a remarkable scene. The ship's kit are getting bigger. The Suez Canal is so important to global trade. I was so surprised after reading this that this hasn't happened many times in the past. It, to me, seems just like a matter of time until this happens again, considering that, well, the ships are getting bigger. Well, so here's an interesting thing. Uh, the day before the canal was completed in the 19th century, just before they were about to uh, hold the first ceremonial flotilla of vessels along it they had an incident the night before and a ship got stuck and blocked the canal and it took them all night to free it you know it's a it's a narrow channel it's 200 meters wide in places that sounds like a lot but modern container ships are so enormous but there's not a lot of room to spare and in a way it is amazing this hasn't happened before 
you know, 50 ships going through each and every day. Mm. And it really is only a matter of time before one of the really big ones gets stuck again. That's Bloomberg's Kit Shillel, along with Business Week editor Joel Weber. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Still to come, demand for its products surged while everyone was working at home. And now that people are heading back to the office, Peloton is too. We'll explain. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. This week, some news. Peloton Interactive said it's looking to expand beyond its bikes and treadmills. Shares traded higher on news that the company is stepping up gym rivalry by entering the corporate wellness business. They are launching a discount program for company employees, much like gyms have offered for years. Now, that same day, Carol Bloomberg exclusively reporting that the company is working on a digital heart rate armband, taking a big step into the competitive wearables market. For more on the moves, we checked in with Cassidy Rouse, general manager of corporate wellness at Peloton. Yeah, we're really excited. We obviously unveiled our new corporate wellness product, which is a new way for organizations to offer Peloton into their wellness programs. See, these companies are spending $60 billion globally on wellness products and programs. This is not including insurance. Uh, But we hear the same things over and over again. They want results. They want stronger engagement. They want measurable outcomes. And these are all native to what Peloton delivers. So uh, we're really excited to extend those benefits into the workplace today and I'm um, really pleased with the with the overwhelming um, support. Well, well, Cassidy, unpack it a little bit for us. I mean, have you signed up companies already? How many companies are you talking to? Give us a little bit, if you can, on the size and scope on the potential for this business for Peloton. Absolutely. We're really excited about the potential. We, we did name a few launch partners. So we're working with um, companies like so the SAP, Wayfair, Sky in the UK, Accenture Interactive, Samsung. So large, innovative organizations, and we're obviously in, um, in deep conversations with many more. But, um, yeah, we're, we're very excited. Ultimately, this is about improving the health and happiness of employees and, and increasing accessibility for our products. So we're really proud to, to come to market with some really respected organizations today. Well, full disclosure, I've got a Peloton, so I totally get it, and I can see Great why tapping into the corporate market. I've had it for several years. Um, but how does it move the needle in terms of revenues? You guys are looking at, I don't know, I'm looking at some of the forecasts of about $4 billion in revenue for the 2021 year. So how big a business could this potentially come for you? And, it, and it's a business that I would go as far to say, and I, I'm curious if you concur, is that it will provide a fairly predictable and reliable revenue stream. Yeah, we're really optimistic about it. it really, how we, we think about this business is um, we see organizations, on average, companies are spending nearly $5 million per company on products to build healthier and happier workplaces. Um, but uh, again, as I said, they want results and they look at Peloton as powering our connected fitness products are powering 26 workouts a month. Mm-hmm. Um, we see an opportunity to come in and solve a real problem in corporate wellness is that companies don't really uh, know or have a strong idea of the ROI they're getting from their spend. And we see it as a way to team up with them to offer a completely accessible um, wellness offering across our digital product portfolio and our connected fitness products. And we think if we can do that, if we can come in and integrate with companies to build healthier and happier workplaces, it's ultimately going to drive membership for us in the, uh, again, the, the growth and the, the financial results will take care of themselves. Will most corporate programs be similar in terms of a discount program for your digital app as well as discounts for the actual hardware, whether it's a treadmill or a bike? 
That's a, a great question, Carol. We, we've architected this to be extremely flexible. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to work with organizations of all sizes, regardless of your goals or your budget. Um, and so we can go as big or we can go as you know, um, entry level as we need to be. But um, it will be the key theme here is that there is absolutely something for everyone in your organization. For those of you who may not have room in their house for equipment or don't have time in their schedule for it, or however, it's, it's the Peloton app. Um, and the power of Peloton in your pocket. For those of you who want the most of your experience, it is um, subsidized and pricing on the hardware. And for those existing members like you, Carol, um, who are all-access members, it's uh, reimbursements and subsidies on their all-access membership. Really interesting. How, but how big a business? I mean, what have been, and I know you're not going to, you can't peel back all the layers and give me all yeah. the numbers. I understand. Um, yeah. But as I said, you're, you know, a company that's projected to do about $4 billion in revenue. Is this potentially a billion dollar business, a half a billion dollar business? Can you give me any indications of size and scope? Would it be something significant or is this just a nice add on? Yeah, we think about it in terms of uh, membership growth. Okay. So if you look at, um, again, I think our leadership has been very transparent and um, bullish on our ability to reach 100 million members globally. And if you look at uh, people who are uh, employed and have access to subsidized health benefits of all kinds, that is a massive serviceable addressable market for us. And for Peloton to be able to integrate within organizations and deliver value back to the company um, and reach a highly incremental new audience for us, we think it could it could really power growth of our community and um, and forge tighter relationships with our members. Hey, Cassidy, why are you guys doing it now? Is it because we've gotten on the other side of the pandemic? And I'm just curious. Yeah, that's also a great question, Carol. We we feel like there's never been a better time to help drive innovation in corporate wellness. So if you think about the, the challenges that companies and benefits managers and um, chief people officers are dealing with, the future of work is very uncertain. The, there are a lot of question marks. The only thing that is certain is that uh, they're going to have to support a more distributed workforce and a more flexible workforce. And it's really hard to put together a package of health and wellness benefits to serve different people in different locations with different schedules. And they really, a lot of the support for Peloton is that it can work around your schedule. And also it can help you build community in a more distributed workforce. We're seeing a lot of our early partners. Um, it's pretty remarkable when you, when you look at what's happened. People are actually holding meetings and team get-togethers through Peloton rides That's and funny. walks and, and workouts yeah. on the app, which is right. – we love to see that. It's, um, so we think it's much more than um, – it's, it's much more than a you know, plug-and-play fitness solution. This is about – integrating within your company and helping people stay connected and healthier and happier. We think there's never been a better time. Right. And you guys, listen, have always uh, have stressed community. I've been at a homecoming here in New York City, and, and I kind of get that why there might be meetings together on a, on a Peloton platform. Hey, one last question. Uh, our Mark Gurman, a scoop, uh, Peloton working on a digital heart rate armband, uh, which would be the company's biggest move beyond stationary fitness equipment. Really, you know, Cassidy, moving into the com- competitive wearables market. Does this kind of fit into also maybe, you know, getting more entrenched in corporate wellness? And just quickly, just got about 30 seconds. Yeah, our, our hardware team or our um, R&D team is always hard at work. Uh, nothing to announce with corporate wellness. Uh, our goal is to offer 
increased access and availability to all of our products, mm-hmm. um, but nothing to announce, unfortunately. That's Cassidy Rouse, General Manager of Corporate Wellness at Peloton. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, how India is managing through the pandemic from her royal princess, Janavi Kumari of Muar. This is Bloomberg. Broadcasting from the financial capital of the world, Bloomberg 1130 in New York, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Business Week. India is home to more than a billion people. You know that an emerging and developing economy that has been on the front lines of the coronavirus health pandemic. Things are getting better. The V-shaped economic recovery that India's policymakers obsessed over in 2020 did eventually materialize. This year, it's a different story. We caught up with someone who has a close-up view of the latest public health developments on the subcontinent. Her royal princess, Junavi Kumari of Moor, she joined us from Jodhpur, India, and shared her account of her homeland struggle with COVID-19 and her hopes for how we can prevent the next global health crisis. The problem that India has faced in the past 15 months is that our uh, policy-making by the government has lacked some level of sophistication and execution of it. And um, if we were to uh, talk about the responsibilities uh, that lie with the leaders of this nation, I would have to look at it from a balanced perspective. I think India has been suffering from a significant um, absence of investment, or let's call it underinvestment, in the public health care sector, which of course has amplified the issues that India is facing today. It's been a death-stealing crisis. There's been a lack of proactiveness on the government's part when there was the opportunity to do so in the early and comprehensive uh, lockdown that we had last year. But unfortunately, the problems have just been compounded by the fact that our public health care infrastructure just just wasn't ready for it. Our legislative system just wasn't ready for it. Well, Princess Kumar, I guess at this point, do you think that things are better post-pandemic, that that the government's learn something about the policies that need to be in place? Or do you think that once we get on the other side of this for India, we kind of just move on with getting back to things as they were? What we need moving forward is first and foremost that we cannot, we absolutely must not let the wisdom of experience be wasted on us. We've got to find a way to work together. It has to be um, it has to be a, a collective action to solve this global, not only the global pandemic, but the problems that the, uh, that the world is facing post-pandemic. So if I was to break it down, I would say politically we need better global governance. We need collective action. We need a new global coalition. We need a new form of internationalism, or let's call it and overall internationalism, because what we have today is internationalism that is completely outmoded for the needs of the present day and the future. Um, what I've also uh, well, do you think? Yeah, well, if I may, if I may follow Princess Kumari, do you feel that the developed world has really failed the developing world, especially when it comes to the health crisis? I wouldn't say it's been an entire failure. I mean, mm. um, if, you, if you look at how the U.S. and India have collaborated uh, during the course of this 
uh, crisis. I mean, uh, the Biden administration, you know, supported the uh, uh, intellectual property way, where the WTO, it's come to India's aid with medical uh, resources, raw materials, and, um, and, and, and at, at its time of need, the vaccination. So I wouldn't say it's an entire, it's been an entire failure. I would definitely say that that's just two people two nations acting together. What we need is collective action. What we need is countries and nation states working together to promote and regulate proper global governance and also facilitate some accountability at large. Because what we're seeing is some pushback to some extent of a couple of arguments. Some saying the global supply chain is here to stay. There's no way to undo it. But at the same time, you did see those nationalistic forces certainly kick into high gear during the pandemic and companies and leaders rethinking, wait a minute, should I have my supply chains also closer to home? So, Karen, you're absolutely right. I think, um, uh, as I was about to say earlier, the fault lines have been observed and they are being addressed. But are they being addressed in an effective fashion is my question today. Mm-hmm. Because w- the global supply chain, of course, isn't going to go anywhere. It is um, what we are seeing is a significantly integrated global economic infrastructure that cannot be undone anymore. But what we can do moving forward is re-engineer and restructure these global supply chains with the objective of, with the objective of an incentivized engagement that promotes shared values. Um, um, it, it, it facilitates more accountability. It weans us off, you know, a, right. a, a deviant natured states. Um, it allows us to um, a, a, to create a new economic infrastructure, a more effective economic infrastructure that mm-hmm. is not holding hostage. Um, other nations, other democratic nations. That was Her Royal Princess Junavi Kumari of Moor, who joined us on the phone from Jodhpur City, India. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, we're going to finish on a lighter note. Well, unless you're a oh, lobster. Consider the lobster, <laughs> as David Foster Wallace wrote years ago. The founder and CEO of Get Main Lobster on why you'll be paying more this summer. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's lobster season. And when I think of lobster, I think of Maine, which accounts for nearly all of America's total lobster harvest. It is an approximately $500 million a year industry for that state, Tim. And that's where we headed to Maine and to Mark Morell, the founder and CEO of Get Maine Lobster. It's a 24-7 online delivery service of lobsters and more for a look at the upcoming season. And as our listeners know, we often like to first ask our guests about managing through the pandemic. That's where we began with Mark. And it turns out we wanted lobsters during lockdowns. Go figure. We had the benefit of, you know, food service and casinos and cruise ships, right? They were no longer big lobster customers. Mm -hmm. So we had plenty of lobster available for quite a long time, for, you know, a good eight, eight to ten months. We didn't have to fight for sourcing. That's changed today. You know, it's interesting, you know, Mark, we talked to a lot of folks and they say, you know, uh, initially we thought our business, we were doomed. Was it like that for you guys initially or was it, no, people were saying, okay, because they quickly moved online. They just were ordering more and more. Which one was it? So my financial advisor said, hey, we have to have the talk. Hmm. Um, 
you need to get prepared just in case. And they said, yes, that would be the responsible thing for us to do. Let's do that. I said, however, uh, what I'm noticing is uh, higher than normal velocity with orders. And so I think we're going to have the opposite effect. Um, You know, we did. We grew 600%. So it's pretty wild. That is crazy. Wow. During the pandemic. Um, And as you said, like so many of us and so many companies, big, small, middle size, just kind of being able to tap the supply chain that they needed. Um, And that's even with, as you said, the cruise industry, they weren't there anymore, right? Yeah, they're no longer customers. So think about uh, a large purveyor and they have uh, stock in their freezers that are, you know, the size of small homes Mm -hmm. and they're preparing to release that you know, in the off season, well, all of their customers left overnight. So they were freaking out. Um, But then there was companies like mine that said, hey, I need to fill my freezer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Can I take yours? (laughs) And so so it shifted, right? And and that was great. And plus, you know, some of them, you know, turned around and 30 days later, they were selling online as well. Um, So good for them for being able to pivot. You know, we were designed perfectly for an instance like this. So what are you seeing right now? (laughs) Demand is still very, very high. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, supply is extremely low. You know, the catch has been low. Um, That's typical this time of year. Mm. There's less traps in the water here in Maine. Um, I think they're waiting until... um, you know, the lobsters get a little bit closer to shore. You know, they're mm-hmm. migrating right now, heading to, uh, you know, cooler waters, um, better environment for them to begin to shed their shell. And, yeah, it's an interesting time. It's uh, Sourcing is very, very difficult. We don't have access to the, what I call, hero products, you know, that yeah. people love, you know, larger tails and things like that. Yeah. So, okay, as you said... Uh, the catch is low this time of year. Supply is very low. So how much is my lobster going to cost me? <laughs> I've never seen it this high this time of year. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, really the live lobster uh, isn't too crazy. But, um, you know, it's when you convert it into lobster meat. You know, I'm sure you saw in the New York Times the $34 lobster roll. I mean, that's real. And uh, Wow. The interesting thing, though, is, you know, consumers are are being understanding and they really want lobster. Demand is still really high. Um, You know, so I don't see the price moving much uh, unless the catch increases dramatically, which it's supposed to. Um, Even then, I don't know if there'll be a drastic drop or not. I I haven't seen anything like this before. Well, tell me a little bit about... Because you guys, I know, think about and are involved with sustainable fisheries uh, in terms of getting your seafood. I think we just take for granted fish or lobsters or shrimp or scallops or whatever, oysters. I spend time in the Long Island Sound, so I see the lobster traps. You know, we have to dodge them. What's involved in farming when it comes to fish specifically, and how do you do it in a in a healthy way, a sustainable way? Well, as it relates to lobster, and we can't catch anything that's below 0.9 pounds, uh, nothing above four, and if we catch a pregnant female, uh, we mark them 
by uh, cutting a V-notch in one of their fins, and then we put her back in, right? And she's going to help breed uh, a whole bunch of more lobsters. And everything's still done by hand, and lobstermen are independent. They're very much committed and have been since the industry started with sustainability. I mean, it's a huge market for Maine. We need to keep it going. And same thing with Maine scallops, right? The season is not very long. We're always very thoughtful about any kind of species that we're fishing to make sure that it's not overfished, it has plenty of time to recoup. You know, the seafood uh, industry, seafood consumption has increased dramatically in the last year. So we really have to, as consumers, we really should be thinking about diversifying the palate, not just focusing on one particular species because that's your favorite, you know, venture out, try some new things. Restaurants are always bringing new things to market. We just started selling uh, a, a trout that comes out of uh, uh, upstate New York, steelhead trout. And it's a beautiful, uh, farmed, clean fish. Well, you know, we talk a lot about food on this broadcast and on air specifically. And we talk a lot about sustainable farming generally and kind of feeding the world. What, and also about innovation within the food space. What's the innovation in your space? Or is it, you know, mm-hmm. the way you gather, it's very similar to how it was done 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. Yeah, I think the innovation lies with uh, how can us consumers are evolving. And mm-hmm. uh, we feel busier. I don't know if we are, but we feel busier, right? So, <laughs> uh, my particular business, we're focused on ready to, ready to heat. So how can I design, uh, because the technology is there, restaurant five-star quality meals that are flash frozen, delivered to your doorstep, you put them in the oven, 20 minutes later you're having this amazing uh, meal, like a lobster risotto with a tarragon butter. Sounds good. You know, we, yeah, we put together a cioppino and... Uh, send everybody the ingredients, and they had to do a little bit of work, but, you know, we have a lot of home chefs now (laughs) because of last year. So it's kind of neat being able to get more creative if the demand is there. Well, it's interesting, too, what you said, that how people have to kind of expand their palate. And one of the things that's enabled people to kind of go in a completely different place is all of the plant-based food. And there's plant-based shrimp. Uh, we're seeing it go into the yeah. seafood market as well. What do you think about that? You know, it's funny you mentioned that because that's part of our expansion plan mm-hmm. is to get into, you know, more plant and land, right? We want to be able to serve anyone and everyone based upon their dietary preferences. Uh, we're even coming out with a new summer box that includes some vegan burgers. But um, <clears throat> as it relates to designing, you know, vegan shrimp and vegan tuna and even this crazy stuff that's going in the labs where they're building a chicken breast from nothing. Um, That one's peculiar to me. Uh, I I don't know how people are going to feel about it. Mm. But um, plant-based is a big thing, and we should be designing the flavors that people love so that they can feel like they're not missing out, right? It's a big Mm -hmm. thing. Am, Am I missing out? if I become plant-based. And um, it's kind of neat that people can engineer flavors uh, and textures Mm -hmm. uh, for those people. So I'm all about it. Well, I love to hear that. Um, 
we've just got about 40, 50 seconds left here. What kind of summer do you think it's going to be uh, when it comes to sales, uh, when all is said and done? Just quickly. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm confident it's going to be great. I'm excited that um, the local main businesses are going to be very, very busy this summer, so that's exciting. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that people are going to want me to ship them some lobsters, and, you know, we love that. Uh, I think the catch is going to increase. <clears throat> I just mm. think we're a couple, we're delayed by a couple of weeks. Okay. And slowly but surely, everything will kind of get back to normal. Um, you know, the price may or may not change. Some people are telling me it's not going to change. Some people are saying, yeah, it's going to go down. So, yeah. you know, we just kind of watch and we try to, you know, create value and right. be transparent. That was Mark Morell, founder and CEO of Get Maine Lobster. You like lobster? I do. I uh, I went to college in Maine. So did I, you eat a lot? No. So I actually I grew up in California. Yeah. I had never had a lobster until I went to college in Are Maine. Are you serious? Yeah. Did you like it though when you had it? Uh, yeah, I did like it. And you know, I don't eat it frequently, but yeah. um, but yeah, it's the type of thing I could eat it once a year. The tail or everything? Everything. Okay, that's yeah. cool. Go for the claws. Go yeah. for it all. Yeah. Lobster rolls too. A lot easier. Impressive. Impressive. All right. That wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenevec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday. It starts at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. Also, check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find it at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bloomberg Business Week is available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. You can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take. It's available at Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. Have a great weekend. And have some lobster. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.